And now here's Jack Riccardi. Hey, Jack. So, hey, good afternoon. I, I get to do the, the, probably as a lot of listeners would love to be able to do this, I get to do this. I, I need to ask you to go back to that beer story. Oh, yes. Oh, you want the instant replay? So the beer the beer has stuff in it that is healthy for the gut. Is yes. that right? Yes, that's what, what we're saying, yes. So it's not a it's not a beer. It's a probiotic drink. Exactly. It's a health drink. Yeah. You find it on the shelves at Whole Foods or it's, your favorite health I store. I mean, I'm just, you know, it's all about spin, right? I'm yeah. Just, just having a health drink here. Yeah. But, yeah, they keep saying stuff about beer and wine. But the, the, the Mac Daddy grand champion of them all, you know, in the beverages is coffee. Yeah. They keep finding all of this amazing, life-extending you know, benefit. And I worry, Dennis, because mm-hmm. I drink a lot of coffee. Yes. I'm almost afraid I might be immortal. <laughs> or if... I mean, I, scary, I always like, feel like for every good thing, there's a bad thing. We just haven't heard what the bad thing is yet. Yeah, once in a while they have a bad thing about coffee. I ignore it. I just ignore the bad <laughs> news about coffee. But but I mean, it sounds like if, if they're right, if they're even half right, um, I could be living to like 200 years old, and I don't have the money for that. I oh, can't. Yeah. I cannot afford to be immortal. I don't have that kind of retirement plan. So, see, see, that's especially the not now. We want good health, but we can't afford to, you know, enjoy that good health. Well, you know what the truth is, and and this shakes people up when I say this to friends of mine. I, I want good health, but I don't want it for too many more years. That's what I want. I want like just a few good years. Yeah. But I don't want to live to be 100 or something. It's like my retirement plan is set for 75 or 80. It, yeah, that's my expiration date, guys. That's my expiration yeah, what, date. What Exactly. All right. So maybe dial back on the coffee or have a beer. I don't know. Um, good afternoon. Welcome to our dreadful little show. And you can jump in and join it at 210-599-5555. So let's get our heads on straight about this special election in the House. Myra Flores won the special election in what is currently the 34th Congressional District. It's a weird district. It's near us in some places, but it's near Brownsville and other places. And you can just imagine what it must be, look, what it must be shaped like. It, um, it was a special election because the member of Congress resigned to take a private sector job. And they'll run again in November, but in November it will be a different set of boundaries. It won't be the exact same district that Myra Flores won last night, 51 to 43% over the Democrat. It is significant that it's been, you know, forever and a day that a Republican won that district. So the significance of her win is that um, the inroads that a Republican candidate can make in a traditionally Democratic place are real. To give you an example... In a couple of the counties that she tied or won last night, they had gone for Obama over Romney by 30 or 40 points. They had gone for Biden, um, and she won them or tied them with uh, the Democrat. The Democrat, by the way, has an interesting take on all this. He conceded the race and said it's not his fault the National Democratic Party is to blame. I agree with him, by the way. Uh, he says uh, they didn't they didn't give me any support. They didn't give me any money. They didn't even try, um, and I I couldn't compete. He had a fraction of the money that Myra Flores had, but it's not that Myra Flores had an obscene or scandalous amount of money. It's that the Democrats did not get behind this candidate. 
they are trying to do it on the cheap and put their money in other places, and as a result, they didn't win this race. But they assure us they're going to win in November. The chairman of the Texas Democratic Party uh, said this. Um, in January 2023, this seat will rightfully return to Democratic hands. Rightfully returns. It's ours. It's our seat. Belongs to them. You know, people have been saying for a while, and I've been slow to come around to it, that the theory, the permanent majority theory of the Democrats may be in trouble. You know, the the theory was, and this is where that great replacement talk comes from and so forth, the theory was that Democrats were counting on demographics to be the permanent majority party in America, that black voters and Hispanic voters, both groups that are growing in, in size and in percentage of the population, would guarantee them continued dominance. But if they keep losing in places like border Texas, that isn't going to be true. If they can't hold counties that they dominated by double digits just two, four, six, eight years ago, that isn't going to be true. And the identity-based hopes of Democrats presume that all Hispanic voters and all black voters want the things that Democrats are for. They've written books about this. They've done cable shows about it. And I think it's becoming clear that that is not true. Now, why is that not true? Is it because Hispanic voters have changed? I don't think so. Is it because Republicans are really great at this now? No, it's not. I think it's all the stuff that the far left has done that turns off these voters, calling them Latinx, thinking they want open borders, thinking they're pro-abortion. They've tried to treat Hispanic voters the way they've long treated black voters as a monolith. They're all the same. They all want the same thing. Remember, you ain't black. Well, black voters are certainly not a monolith. And Hispanic voters are not either. And the damage is not only done, but it's getting worse. Because with every given day, right, the Democrats sound like they're more out of touch with people that are basically small-c conservative people, people that have conservative outlooks on life, that have traditional values, that value family, that value rule of law, that want to be... Um, that want to live in a society that recognizes and rewards merit and hard work. Everybody gets a chance. Not a political party that tells you you're a victim from birth and you're a victim by demographic. Today the president's issued an executive order to expand access to sex change treatments for children. Uh, it's tied in with Pride Month, and the executive order goes to Department of Health and Human Services, and it says that um, it will increase the opportunities for children to access sex change therapy and treatment, or what they call in the executive order gender-affirming care. But, of course, it's, it's actually the opposite of that, right? It's, it's gender-denying care. I, I mean, 
I, I get where he's going with that for the LGBTQ voter, but that's another thing that says to Hispanic and black voters, we don't get you. And they don't get where this country is right now. I mean, isn't it clear? Every day this administration tells us the economy is strong. We're doing great. You're doing great. The other day, the press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, said, do you remember where this country was when Biden took office? Do you remember where we were? Yeah, I remember where we were. We had $2 a gallon gasoline. We had 1% inflation. The markets were higher. Yes, I remember. You might not want to ask that question too often. Here's one of President Biden's top economic advisors. He was on Bloomberg Network. And he was asked a question about the struggles people are having with inflation, particularly retirees. Listen to his answer and how out of touch this is. Cut number one. If you have a 401k out there or if you're a retiree on a fixed income, it's pretty rocky right now, given what we're seeing with the inflation eating into your returns, uh, as well as the markets down. What do you tell those people? Look, the president is is deeply sympathetic to that. His uh, number one priority right now is tackling inflation. He's made that clear for for several weeks, several months uh, for now. But I think what we need to take a step back and look at is that uh, American households as a whole are doing very, very well. If you look at where we we were before the pandemic and where we are right now. We're doing very, very well. You're doing very well. You're doing better than you were two years ago. Are you doing better than you were two years ago? And the president's getting angry about it. He spoke to the AFL-CIO yesterday. Take a listen to this, cut number four. I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. So he's not mad at how hard you're having it. He's mad that you think you're having it hard. They're mad that you don't appreciate them more, that you're not more into this administration, that you're not more happy with its policies, that... The way life now is, you should be glad for this. Well, compared to what? I mean, if we were Venezuelans, I guess this would be a, an improved economy. But the, the divide is breathtaking. This isn't just limousine liberals. This isn't just privileged people. The traditional, you know, there's always been that, that, that divide between people in, you know, they call it the beltway, you know, and, and the rest of the country. These people are screaming at the top of their lungs and waving their arms over their head, telling you you've never had it better. Do you feel that way? You've never had it this good. And it's not just the Beltway. They had a meeting of the Senate Finance Committee in Austin the other day. And they took testimony about the skyrocketing property taxes that we're all under. And believe it or not, it was the Democrats who expressed more concern about that than the Republicans. The Republican chairman of the committee said Texans should just wait. They're going to see their taxes go down. You're going to see easing. But I already got my appraisal, and I appealed it, and I got a little bit of it cut off. But it's still going to be extremely high. It's on a trajectory that will tax me out of my house. So even in Austin, 
And even the party you tend to associate with being better at this stuff, economics, they don't get how we're living. They don't get what this is doing to us. They don't, they don't get how broken it is down here at the level of people that pump their own gas. Are you doing better than you were two years ago? Today's JR poll, powered by Stevens Roofing. Tell me about it. Let's talk about that. We're going to start with that. 210-599-5555. White House says most Americans are better off than we were two years ago. 210-599-5555. This caught my eye because uh, I had an intern years ago that went to uh, this school, George Washington University, announcing that their sports team nickname will no longer be the Colonials. In a statement last night, the chair of George Washington University's Board of Trustees announced that they recognize after a thoughtful and deliberative process that this word is not a source of pride and unity, that even though it was adopted a hundred years ago to refer to the original residents of the American colonies, the British colonies, that now colonials uh, triggers people because it sounds like uh, it refers to people that are under the you know heel of an empire and being exploited. So they're going to change the name. They're going to get rid of the name Colonials. See, this is the divide in a nutshell. We can laugh about it, right? But this is the divide in a nutshell. There are people in boardrooms a million miles away from your life and my life who think this matters, who think it will matter to us, We're sitting here trying to figure out how to send our kids to college, how to afford the college our son or daughter wants to go to. I don't care what the name of the sports team is. I really don't. That doesn't matter. It won't matter to her. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to you. And when you hear them in Washington or Austin talk about how great our economic lives are, what do you do with these people? I, I The answer we had yesterday was they've got to be fired. What do you do before you fire someone? You talk to them, you have a talk with them. Hey, come on in, sit down, shut the door, I need to talk to you. You, you put them on notice. We've done all that. The president gave a speech before the AFL-CIO yesterday that was a full loaf, not a pound, a full loaf. Of baloney. That's where he was yelling about he doesn't want to hear anymore about spending because, damn it, we're changing people's lives. Yeah, you're changing people's lives for the worse. We're going to have a recession. You're tanking the stock market. They like to say the stock market doesn't matter to real people. It matters to real people who are about to retire. And when they're not telling us it's going great, they're trying to tell us that it was bad under Trump. But it wasn't. It was coming back under Trump. You can, you can say that wasn't Trump's doing. I don't care whether you give him credit or not. But you can't tell me that 2019 was not a killer year because it was. And the lie about creating, I think, I think his claim right now is 8 or 10 million jobs we have not replaced the jobs lost to the covid shutdowns 
we're in negative territory. And worse than that, and we're going to talk about it as we go on today, the very workplace itself, the labor market itself, has changed to where there's fewer people willing to work. So even when companies want to hire and have a position and have the funding for the position, can't get the people. I was talking to a guy today who owns a small business up in New Hampshire. Right now it's basically just him because he had three or four part-time people working for him. He can't get them. He can't get anybody. And so he's turning away business other than what he can do himself. I'll bet that's the experience of a lot of businesses. They're not, they're not dying, but they're watching dollars pass them by because they can't take the money, they can't take the business because they can't find the people. So are you better off? 210-599-5555. Terry is on KTSA. Terry, good afternoon. Hi, Jack. I don't know where the who he's talking about being better off. I I mean, I've lived here in South Texas for about 27 years, and I'm 60 years old, and I've never paid so much for gasoline, food, utilities, or anything else. You know, I, at the end of the day, hell no, we're not better off. We're scraping and raking, but we're doing without a lot. You go to a restaurant, you can't get decent help. You can't get decent people to, to even acknowledge that you're sitting there. You know, nobody wants to work. I don't know where it, how the hell this guy thinks he's that we're better off. You walk down the street, you got to worry about somebody shooting you. You drive down the highway, you got to worry about somebody shooting you. We didn't deal with this stuff two years ago. Trump had gasoline down to a dollar a gallon. And you know what? The economy was doing great. People were happy. But you know what? This guy, all he thinks about, the reason he thinks that nobody's hurting because he doesn't have to pay for a damn thing. That's true. I think it's that. I think it's the people around him. Um, but oh, I, and, and Terry, great, great call. Joke. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I'll tell you something else. In addition to everything Terry said, which was all very good, he has to say what he's saying now because what happened with gas, just to use one example, is what they promised to do. Okay. They promised to crash the fossil fuel industry. That, that, that's what they call it. They don't call it energy or oil and gas. They call it fossil fuel, implying that it is already on the ash heap of history. It's already ancient history. You know, Saying it's fossil fuel is like saying you know, you're living in the past if you're still using it. And this is what, this is what they have to do. They have to say now... This is almost like Joe Biden is complaining to Joe Biden. He sent a letter this week to the oil and gas producers demanding they produce more. He might as well have sent a letter to himself. Every decision they've taken is a result of what they've heard him say as a candidate and what they've watched him do as president. He said he would treat climate change like an existential threat and he would ban drilling on federal lands and in federal waters. And he would rally the world to the Paris Accord. And we would transition the country forcibly to green energy. So Joe Biden should meet Joe Biden. And to, to actually watch him, here's what he's done this week. He sent this angry letter to the oil and gas companies. He talked about using the Defense Production Act 
to increase refining capacity. He's going to Saudi Arabia, it looks like, we think, a country that during the 2019-2020 campaign period he called a pariah nation, said we shouldn't have anything to do with. But he's going there now in a second attempt. The first attempt was rebuffed. They didn't even take his call. In a second attempt to get them to produce more oil. By the way, if they did and do, we still don't have the refining capacity. But all of this is like Joe Biden meet Joe Biden. And that's how I know this was never him to begin with. These are not his ideas. He's the front for other people. And they're sending him out here to give angry speeches about stuff that he created, that he caused. You know, this is like, this is like the serial killer demanding that his victim have a pulse. Vladimir Putin is now selling more oil at higher prices than before Joe Biden's sanctions on Vladimir Putin. Imagine that. Before the war in Ukraine, Russia delivered about half of its total daily output to Europe. Thanks to increased oil energy prices, its annual revenues will be 45% larger this year than last year. Not only are they getting more per barrel, but they're also selling more barrels. So that worked great. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, as I mentioned, the president is sending threat letters to big oil. He's still referring to it as the Putin price hike. And he told the heads of Exxon, Mobil, Chevron, Shell, Phillips 66, etc., uh, they better get their refinery output up or else. I understand, he wrote, that many factors contributed to the business decisions to reduce refinery capacity, which occurred before I took office, Biden wrote. My administration is prepared to use all reasonable and appropriate federal government tools and emergency authorities, that's the Defense Production Act, to increase refinery capacity and output in the near term and to ensure that every region in the country is appropriately supplied. It's always someone else's fault. It's never his. So it's Putin's fault. It's the previous administration's fault. His own administration, meanwhile, I, I mean, they're not all on the same page, right? I mean, every time I turn around, there's Jennifer Granholm or Pete Buttigieg extolling the virtues of electric cars. And, and others in his party, just they just love electric cars. In fact, everyone should have one, says Senator Debbie Stabenow. Democrat from Michigan. Listen to this. Cut number two. To respond to one of our oil and gas enthusiastic uh, Republican senators who just said something about uh, my buying an electric vehicle. I got to tell you, we have great new Michigan electric vehicles. My Chevy Bolt is terrific. Made at the Lake Orion plant in Michigan. Affordable union labor, and I'm so proud to have an opportunity to be able to support Michigan workers. What he was doing and others are doing is trying to divert us from the fact that we have gas gouging at the pump and have mm. had it for some time. My mm. policy and communications committee put out a report a couple of months ago about the fact that last year the top oil and gas companies made mm -hmm. 237 
billion dollars mm. in profits, and yet they wow. continue to gouge us at the pump. So uh, why don't they love... gouge us at the pump when uh, Republicans are in office? I mean, if you can gouge people, you'd gouge them all the time, right? I mean, you gouge them while the party that supposedly you're cozy with is in power. You wouldn't hold back. You wouldn't have the restraint of saying, "We'll we'll sell gas at a you know buck sixty a gallon." But then if Biden gets in, I mean, none of this makes any sense. Their answer is you should get an electric car. Their answer is you're doing better than you think you are. This is a strong economy. You you've never had it so good. Sometimes they say it's never been this strong since World War II. And you're probably saying to yourself right now, Jack, why are you even wasting time talking about this? We all know it's not true. But I want to hear how it's not true for you. Or if it is true for you. 210-599-5555. This is interesting. Very quietly, according to Bloomberg News, the Biden administration is urging agricultural companies to uh, buy up Russian fertilizer in an effort to deal with ongoing food inflation. And Moscow is a key supplier of global fertilizer. And so they're exempting the sanctions on doing business with Russia to get the fertilizer. Remember those heady days of big talk about Ukraine and this shall not stand and yeah, well, you needed to have your ducks in a row first. An, an, an energy-independent America can take the, the stand, can take the position, not only against Russia, but it can be the, the, the gas station for Europe. But an energy-dependent America can't do those things, isn't doing those things. And it's almost like the inflation deniers are finally coming around, Right? Remember last year we were told inflation would be transitory and um, it would soon be over. Now it's shattering records, breaking records. If you talked about lasting inflation, if you talked about stagflation, if you talked about a return to 1970s conditions, you were called a conspiracy theorist or a doom monger. Today the Fed raised the the 75 point uh, rate hike. So they're admitting, sort of, what we knew. It's not transitory. Uh, it's not going away. In fact, we haven't even seen the worst of it yet. And it's interesting to see people like Powell, the Fed chairman, and Yellen, the Treasury secretary, kind of sort of admitting this, because usually the, they're usually the last people. The economists that work for an administration are typically the last people to admit that the economy has been mismanaged. Yellen's in a particularly interesting position. She was the Fed chairman and now is the Secretary of the Treasury. But the problem with their admission is that it's being followed up with disinformation, false blame, lies about Russia, lies about Trump, you know, lying that you're actually doing better than you think you are. Here's the thing they'll never admit. They'll never admit that deficit spending and all of the uh, stimulus spending 
during and after COVID um, are the overall causes of this inflation. So we created tens of trillions of dollars out of thin air. We bloated the size of the government. We bloated the size of the budget. There are too many dollars chasing too few goods. You're doing and I'm doing, we're doing exactly what any economics 101 student would expect us to do. Coming out of a pandemic, we are interested in getting back to the things we couldn't or weren't allowed to do, right? We're trying to uh, resume activity. And we're finding, as the as Terry pointed out, we go to a restaurant. They don't have service. They don't have help. They're not open. They don't. They're not open every day. They're not open every hour. They're not able to um, supply the goods and services. Every day, there's a new consumer product category that's out or in short supply. We talked yesterday about women's uh, products, and this is always the lie, right? So first. They don't admit that they caused it. Then they blame other actors, not their own actions. Then they never admit how bad the crisis is going to get. Even the word recession may not be strong enough for what's coming. I don't know, but there's some indication that it's going to be more than your average recession. You've been through some recessions. Then as people sort of stumble around trying to get baby formula or figure out how to pay for gasoline they swoop in with a solution that usually involves them having more power. So the next thing you're going to hear is that the government needs to plan the economy more. It needs more control over the economy. The reason this has happened is because we don't have enough government, not because we had too much, which is in fact the case. This has been the model ever since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Oh, this isn't the government's fault. This is the fault of not enough government. Now, deep down inside, no matter who you voted for or what political party label you have, you know this is true. You know that we need to take these people, you know, out from behind the steering wheel. We don't need to be giving them more power. In fact, they need to have substantially less power and decisions. Why should people that fail so often continue to enjoy positions of influence and authority? It was the same question we asked during COVID. Why, why is the guy advising Presidents Trump and Biden, Anthony Fauci, someone with a long track record of failure, of getting things wrong, and getting that particular virus wrong? And you heard probably the news today, and I don't say this with any joy. It's ironic. Dr. Fauci has COVID now. How can that be? Nobody knew more than him about how not to get it. Nobody lectured us more about how not to get it, and he got it. So the real danger of the moment that we're in is the feedback loop aspect of it, okay? The people that got us into this are now presenting themselves as the people to get us out of it. The power they wielded foolishly, recklessly, that put us into this mess They're going to demand more of it. And they're counting on you to be so stunned and freaked out and scared and worried that you might just say yes, you might just agree. 
And they have reason to believe that because as free as Americans are, we've done this before. We've, we've caved on this before. We've said to the federal government, we said to FDR in the 1930s, okay, all right, take over, take the wheel. And this just keeps happening and happening and happening. Top economic advisor tells Bloomberg News Americans need to step back and really look at things and realize they have nothing to complain about. And he said the president's doing everything he can about inflation. Well, technically that's true. Everything he's done has driven inflation. And this is a two-party problem. We don't have enough people in the Republican Party that really believe in capitalism, that really believe in free enterprise. So when they get their turn, you get a, a, you know, a light version of this. And let's remember that a lot of the tactics for dealing with the COVID lockdowns started under the Trump administration, started when we had a businessman president. I, I can't I know, a lot, I know a lot of you love him, but I can't forget about the fact that he should have known better on some of the stuff they did, the, the stimulus spending and some of the other stuff they did. Tell me what you think. Start with Omar on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Omar, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack. Um, the wife and I are not doing better than, <laughs> than two years ago. You know, our, our retirement accounts have taken about a 30 34% hit FR clothing that I have to buy for, you know, I work for one of the evil pipeline companies, you know, a couple of years ago, pants were in the 60 and $70 range. Uh, I just bought some here a few weeks back. They were a hundred dollars a pair mm-hmm. filled mm-hmm. up last week. It was $186 to fill my truck up with diesel, you know, groceries are higher. It's just, you know, it, but, but at least the wife and I are not complete idiots when it comes to our checking account and we're not starving, mm-hmm. but it, it's not uh it things are not good well i can think of another way you're not better off you and i have talked a number of times about life down on the border and you've described vividly i mean to the point where our callers remember you omar i mean you've talked about how dangerous life down there has become in the last two years yes and we're just fortunate that we're not where we are in lago county you know, it, it, it has gotten bad, but we're not, you know, further south and further west right. where, where it's really, really bad. But, yes, the high-speed chases are just, just it doesn't make any sense. You know, they're going to be they're allowed to come in anyway. Why run? I mean, they just come on in. You know, don't, yeah. don't let's not put yeah. everybody in danger by driving like an idiot. Amen to that. Omar, thank you. Thanks for the call. I appreciate hearing from you, as always. Uh, Pamela is on KTSA. Pamela, good afternoon. Hi, Jack. Um, I've been in the oil and gas industry since 1980 as an oil and gas accountant. Uh, My nephew is an engineer for one of the refineries down in Corpus Christi. Uh, They were at 50% capacity last year due to the EPA. They are currently at 100% capacity, which is about 102,000 barrels of oil per day. And they could go a lot higher if they were deregulated, which means they would have to get the EPA off their back. But right now, they can't because of the EPA. So if Biden wants them to produce more, they can, but he's got to deregulate them, and Biden's not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I to me, there's like too many, too many chefs in the kitchen with these people, because how can you talk about 
producing more of something that you promised, you made a central campaign promise to have less of. <laughs> exactly. It's uh, The oil industry in this state is not doing well just due to uh, all the regulations, everything that came out of the whole ERCOT mess so far as pipelines and regulations and all of that now and everything we're having to do to report to them. So it's a little bit scary. We've been through it many, many times before, but uh, I pray everybody gets through it and, and can keep on moving. It's 210-599-5555. So we were talking about the gas prices, and we were asking you on the JR poll. Uh, the White House uh, says most Americans are better off than they were two years ago. Are you? better off than you were two years ago. Um, I want to hear your answer to that at 210-599-5555. Even if you think the answer is obvious, like in the abstract, generally, come on, how can you even ask? Tell me how you're doing. Right? I'm asking. Somebody asks how you're doing. Might as well tell them. Um, why are they not, instead of yelling and screaming about the oil companies and produce more and we're going to hit you with the Defense Production Act. Why aren't they celebrating that the average price in this country is now over $5 a gallon? That about half the states are now over $5 a gallon? Isn't this what they wanted? Do you remember? This is almost two years ago at the beginning of the election cycle for president. The Democrats had a town hall, and uh, they had a uh, climate town hall on CNN. It went on for hours. It was like an all-day climate fest on CNN. And I remember we talked about it at the time. They were all trying to one-up one another in, ha- in hating on fossil fuels, Right? You had Joe, and you had Bernie, and you had Focahontas, and you had Kamala Harris, and Pete Buttigieg, and all these others. And, and, and no one was going to get to the left of any of them. Now, if you watched even a little of it, or read about any of it, you have to take these people at their word. You might think, you might be tempted to think, oh, they can't be this crazy. But if you're the oil and gas industry, you have to gird your loins. And so that's what the Chevron guy was saying the other day. We had the story a day or two ago that they're, what they're doing right now. And, and look, I'm not, I, by no means am I saying they're saints or they're angels or they're, they're innocent. Of course they're greedy and of course they want to make money and they do. But they prepared for the rhetoric they heard. They presumed these people, if given power, would try to turn this country into Venezuela. They were right to think that because that's what voting for a Democrat does. It turns this country into Venezuela. When you hear what they were promising, when you see Joe Biden on the campaign trail telling young voters, I will end fossil fuel, how do you reconcile that with the Joe Biden today that is dumping Uh, you know, oil out of the strategic reserves that is demanding more refining, that is going to Saudi Arabia, hoping to bring oil back with him. How, How do you reconcile that? 
I mean, you and I can be peeved about it, but if you're the industry, the energy industry, you had to bake this into your expectations, and they did. 210-599-5555. If you voted for this, it's on you. And if you made the mistake of thinking they didn't mean it, or they were just saying it, well, now you know. Aren't these the gas prices they wanted? I mean, they've all but admitted it a couple of times. They've even come out and said, this will speed up the transition to electric, which, by the way, I don't think it will. But when you say that about something, that's like saying to people that are starving, hey, this is a good time to, you know, trim your waistline. (laughs) This is a good time to enhance your cheekbones. That's what they're saying to you. I, I'm just I'm just pointing it out. I mean, you think of it what you want, you do with it what you want. I'm not telling anybody how to vote, but don't make the mistake of thinking they don't mean it, because they've just proven over the last two years that they do. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. James is on KTSa. James, are you better off than you were two years ago? I'm definitely not, and I want to thank you. I'm a longtime listener. You know, I'm, I need a thumbnail because I'm just really not understanding all the wells and everything are still there. It's not like when Biden was elected into office that the that that everything got removed. What I don't understand and I need the thumbnail for is what why exactly are we not pumping? I, I just don't get it. I don't understand it why why we're not at full capacity and, and maybe I'm Well because those companies right? I just I think I just kind of touched on this, but those companies mm-hmm. listened to the rhetoric. They saw him win the election they then promised to reduce their output. In other words, I'll take BP as an example. Their CEO promised and delivered on the promise to reduce oil and gas production uh, by 40%. That was what the people who won the election had demanded he do, so that's what he did. Now those same people are writing him an angry letter saying, you better up your production or we're going to take over with the Defense Production Act. Do you see how insane that is? That is insane. I had no idea. See, I, I did not understand that portion of it. They told these companies, you need to become green there. energy producers or else. Mm-hmm. So they right. threatened them if they kept pumping, they cut back. Then they threatened them with not pumping enough, which is what the president said today. Now he says, well, I know you're pumping it, but you're not refining it fast enough. And that's because the re- we haven't built a new refinery in this country since, I think, uh, the days of Ronald Reagan. I mean... They are, this is like the, you know, Jack the Ripper yelling at his victim, why don't you have a pulse? Right. All right, well, thank you. I just needed that thumbnail because I did not, I I wasn't getting why we weren't pumping. Yeah, I mean, and then you have the, thank you, James, I appreciate it. I mean, and then then you have the the, uh, cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline. You have the pulling of the offshore oil leases. That all happened in the first few weeks of this administration. In fact, he announced he was canceling Keystone the day before he took the oath of office. So we we signaled Canada, the deal is off. We pulled offshore oil leases. We pulled federal land leases. In um, the spring of 2021... A federal judge revoked Gulf of Mexico drilling leases. And the Biden administration did not appeal that decision because they liked it. 
they're all about reducing carbon emissions. They're all about going to a green energy economy. You almost have to raise the price of fossil fuels if you want people to do that. How else are you going to get them to do it? So they've proposed carbon taxes, cap and trade, higher leasing fees, reduce, uh, excuse me, revoked existing leases. I'm not saying that the oil and gas producers don't love to make a profit and, and don't make a profit. All that's true. But you can't blame any industry in America, whether it's energy or any other, for paying close attention to what the powers that be say and then making long-term plans accordingly. And remember, the things they're planning in their boardrooms and their meetings today are for years from now. They're not planning the next tank of gas you and I fill up with. They're planning 2030, okay? And they have to look at who's in power. They have to look at what we're, who we're electing. And this is part of, you know, having less oil production and less refining is part of their plan. It's what they promised to do. I can't emphasize this enough. So it isn't that things haven't worked out. It's that things have absolutely worked out. And they're pretending... This isn't what they want. They're pretending. Remember I told you a few weeks ago, they like, to, they like to climb up into the seats with us in the stands and pretend they're bystanders. They like to pretend that they're as mad as we are. Well, you can't be. You're on the field. You're playing the game. You, 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 can't, you can't sit on the sidelines now and go, wow, isn't this terrible? So I don't know why they're not doing a dance over the gas prices. They've saved the planet. If these keep going up, they've saved the planet. Instead of only having 8 or 12 years, maybe we've got 20 now. And this should be the message from the Republicans if they have half a brain. Don't just attack them as stupid or inept or Biden's too old. Remind people, this is what they planned on. This is what they engineered to the extent that the government controls the price at the pump, you'll often hear politicians say, well, the, pre the president doesn't set the price. Well, to the extent that he can, they did. It's like everything's a game to politicians, you know? Have you noticed that? It's a game. Remember how, after Uvalde, we needed common-sense gun reform. And so they had a bipartisan meeting, and they came up with a framework of things. And one of the things they came up with was an enhanced review process for gun buyers under the age of 21. For buyers under the age of 21, a more exhaustive, intensive, investigative period, looking at juvenile and mental health records, checking state and local databases, et cetera, et cetera. That's what's in the agreement. We don't know if that will be in the bill, but that's what's in the agreement. Well, now the squad says, no, checking juvenile criminal records to buy a gun might be racist. AOC says it might be racist if we criminalize the gun background check framework. We criminalize juvenile background checks. Now, I will say, I will say, 
in one sense, she's right. The history of gun control has always been a history of intentionally keeping guns away from certain kinds of people. In fact, the origins of gun control in the 20th century were to keep guns out of the hands of black people. Very clearly, gun control was hand in glove with the Jim Crow laws. You can, you can look it up. You don't want people who cannot rely on the local police to instead own a gun. So you make sure they can't, at least not legally. And then if they own one illegally, ha, we got them. Of course, that's not what she's talking about. What she's talking about is if we're excluding people for having any kind of record, that's going to be racially disproportionate. So I guess you can say the good news here is that of all people, AOC and the squad may be the ones that sabotage this thing in the House that these bipartisan senators worked on. This is why they say you should not watch the sausage being made, right? 210-599-5555. There's a story today about, um, we've talked in the past about Californians coming to Texas. Apparently now there's an increasing trend of Californians moving to Mexico. Uh, Daryl Graham of the Baja 123 Real Estate Group says about half the people he is settling in Baja, California are from California. Taxes, crime, politics, all the things that people are unhappy with in California are bringing them to Mexico, he says. California is now the second most expensive state to live in after Hawaii, according to Credit Karma. You know, it's one thing if you live in an expensive state or an expensive city, but things are well run, right? I mean, people people in the past have made that trade-off. Well, you get this, you get that. If I can afford it, I'll pay for it. It's the same reason you might choose to eat at a, you know, a, a five-star restaurant or stay in a five-star hotel. If it's worth it and you have the money, you pay it. The problem is California is not worth it. People are paying through the nose for services, but what they're getting are urban outdoorsmen opioid flea markets, rolling brownouts, raging wildfires due to no forestry control, unlivable, unwalkable streets, high crime, defunded police, communist district attorneys. I read where the median house price in California is now north of $800,000. $800,000. Median house price. And that's the state. That's not just like San Francisco or Los Angeles. And when you get to that point, and when you get to the point they're in now, you've basically got a third world country, meaning you've got no middle class, right? If the house is a, is, is a million dollars, and the taxes are sky high, and the only way to live comfortably is to live behind gates and private security, then you're going to have nothing but very rich people behind those gates, and hard-working poor people making their beds and vacuuming their floors and cooking their meals and delivering things to them. And there'll be no middle class, and that's the definition of a third-world country. It's a place where there's no middle class. There's no economic mobility. The people that are down at the bottom have no way, no hope of getting to the top. 
California has become that country Trump famously described as a bleephole country. And Mexico looks better to people in California. I'm not, I don't mean this to sound insulting toward Mexico, but the country that people are fighting to get out of now looks better than living in or trying to live in California. And maybe it is dangerous, and maybe there are cartels, but they're probably saying, well, at least I'll be able to afford to live there, or at least they're not promising me stuff they're not delivering on. Or at least if my kid goes to school, as a heterosexual, he'll come home as one. Just a thought. California's moving to Mexico is the new thing for 2022. And we're asking you on the JR poll, the White House economic advisor top White House economic advisor, said on Bloomberg News that most Americans need to step back and realize they're better off than they were two years ago. Are you better off than you were two years ago? And Paul is on 550 KTSA. Hello, Paul. Hello. Thank you for your service, and thank you for helping us realize what's going on. And myself, I'm a 100% disabled veteran, and I receive approximately 20 $3,500 a month, and I'm not better. I'm in worse condition than I was last year and the year before that, mm. and it's not getting better. Unfortunately, our government is not pro-business people. They don't want our country to get better. They want it to get worse. And Biden, I, President Biden, I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but he's doing all the wrong things to kill this nation. And we are a third world nation at this point because we got everybody coming into this country. They treat people better than they treat veterans and elderly people in this mm-hmm. country. And that's so unfortunate because a lot of these elderly people that worked all their lives to get enough to survive on can no longer survive on that. Mm-hmm. And you go to any grocery store, ATB, uh, P.S. Uh, you go anywhere. You got senior citizens working to survive, mm-hmm. and when the country allows that to happen, and our younger people that that there's signs all over the San Antonio, Texas, in restaurants and drive-throughs, jobs are offering it eighteen dollars yep. an hour, yeah. and they yeah. don't want to work. Right. All I can say, God bless America, and may God help everyone in this country, because I tell you what, the born workers of this country are going to be the third world nation, like all Central and South America. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you for your call. Thank you for your service, too. God bless you, too. Thank you for you. Thank you for your service, because without you, nobody in the world would find out what the heck's going on. We got people moving into this country. When I first got out of the Marine Corps, I was told by the city of San Antonio I had 30 days to change my plates from California plates to my home state, which I did. Mm-hmm. I see hundreds of people driving around. I even got a neighbor that's been living here for over six years and still driving with foreign plates. Right. They don't do nothing about it. Yeah. No, you're right, Paul. I I, I would be in better shape. 
you you make you make a very good you make a very good point about that and and I am sorry that for all the service that you rendered this is what's happening now but thank well, you thank you sir me, thank you sir it's you you and all the people that defend this country we have people in office that don't care about this country they care about their pocketbook and that's what it's about it's all yeah. about money well, we got to start. We got to start loving our country more, and 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 insisting that the people we elect uh, love yeah. it too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank, sure. thank you, Paul. Yeah, thank you for the call. Um, he just put me in mind of. He said a lot of great things. Um, when I was uh, gone last week, and I went to that funeral, it was for the the wife of my uncle. Uh, my uncle is a, a, a he's he's still hanging in there, but he's on his last legs. Um, both of them were in the hospital when she passed. He is a Navy veteran. He's an atomic veteran. So he served in the 1950s on a uh, container, uh, you know, a, a supply ship. I always get the, it's like LST or LSD, one of those uh, uh, logistics ships. He was part of a task force that was at Bimini when they did the atomic tests. And these, these men were told to stand on the deck of their ships, not just his ship, the whole group. They stood on the deck. They were told to put their arm, if you can picture what I'm describing, like their forearm over their eyes. Not goggles, protective wear, nothing. Just put your arm over your eyes, and we're going to do this atomic test. And he said, you could see through your own arm. You could see through your own arm. You could see the bone inside your body. And these guys felt it and heard it, and the ships jumped out of the water. And Now, all these years later, he and his family presume that the health problems he's having probably, potentially, are due to that service. He is the most patriotic guy you've ever met. He loves this country. He was active in veterans of foreign wars until he literally couldn't be anymore. He was very active. He rose to a very high position in the state VFW. I think he was the president or the chairman of the state. And he... Um, worked nationally and they did I, I think I, I said some of it the other day they did a lot of work with homeless veterans he and his wife the wife is the one who passed all, all I'm saying is there should be no waiting for people like this or or Paul right we should deliver for them and now his family is struggling to get him the care and the things that I think and you probably think he's owed and you can get it. I mean, they're going to go through their congressional office and their Senate office, and that does make a difference. We did that with my dad. When my dad was in a bad way toward the end of his life, it was um, Senator Kennedy's office and Congressman Frank's office, two, two guys my dad despised and did not vote for. But I will say that the constituent services people in those offices were superb and very helpful. Never asked about how we voted or who we voted for. Just recognized this is a World War II veteran. We're going we're to take care of him. We're going to cut the red tape. And they did. 
that's what you have to do, but, but it shouldn't even take that, right? It, it, and like Paul said, we should not watch people push past us in line for things that Americans paid for and earned and sacrificed for. This country should work for people that worked for it. And, and I mean, um, the other point that I thought he made, which was a great point, and I see this too, have you noticed how many jobs are either unfilled or senior citizens are filling them? Now, I have nothing against senior citizens working. Are they working because they want to work? I just wanted to get out of the house. Are they working because they have to work? because they can't make ends meet in retirement? Are they working because younger people won't do those jobs? I mean, what are, what's happening to the workforce? We're, we're finding out what is going to happen with all the cultural sea changes in our workforce. Um, workers constantly quitting to take other jobs. No loyalty between employee and employer. By the way, no loyalty both ways, right? Um, workers cutting from full-time to part-time. Workers going out for lunch and never coming back. People deciding to drop out of the workforce. They call it the great resignation. We'll talk about that. Um, because we're going to find out some things we've never found out before. We're going we're gonna to go through some things. We, this is not like any other recession or um, economic downturn we've ever had before. The challenge before was providing the jobs. The challenge now is we've got the jobs, we don't have the workers. So restaurants are one of the workplaces that are really struggling with a workforce that doesn't seem to want to work anymore. I'm not talking about people being lazy. This is not, oh, he's going to run down Gen Z now. No, no, I, I, I think we've got to come to grips with this. We're about to find out what happens when um, people have permanently rethought work. You know, I don't think it started with the pandemic, but during the pandemic, all you heard were voices saying, Stay home. Stay safe. It's good to be home. It's good to stay home. You're, you're doing the right thing. It's dangerous to go to work. It's selfish to go to work. You could bring a disease home and kill your grandma. Now, again, it didn't start with that, but I think that stomped on the accelerator of a trend that was already being talked about and already being measured. You know, there's a famous story about Steve Jobs. I forget who he was talking to, but one of the guys he first, one of the first disciples that he roped into Apple, what would become Apple. And um, this guy was working at a fast food place. And supposedly Steve Jobs said something to him like, do you want to sell sugar water or do you want to change the world? So the point was, do you want a job with a guaranteed paycheck or do you want something that's a challenge, that's unpredictable and risky, but it will have meaning? 
And I think the guy quit his job and went with Steve Jobs, if I remember. But that's what people are doing now. They're changing their lives. They're saying no to sugar water. They're saying no to fast food. They're saying no to hourly wages. Some of them are doing it by participating in the gig economy, right? Or piecing together a little bit here and a little bit there. Some of them are probably doing it by getting on some sort of social welfare dole. Some people are leaving the workforce because they're deciding to stay home with their kids. And people are deciding if we can make it on one paycheck, let's not hustle and scramble to get two. We're only giving most of that second paycheck to child care and transportation and it isn't worth it. At one time, people wanted to, you know, keep running in the wheel, right? Faster and faster, running in the wheel. And the economy worked on that that model of, of millions and millions of people running in their little wheels. But if people are starting to think, you know what, no matter how fast I run, the government just keep, keeps taking more and more of it. I can't get the things I was working toward. I can't afford the things I thought I was going to buy. Or they don't have them. And then you have people saying, you shouldn't just have a job, you should have a calling, you should have something that's meaningful. But the problem, as Mike Rowe has pointed out many times, is that there are jobs that need to be done. They're just, as he calls them, dirty jobs. They're not, they're not full of meaning and philosophically enriching, but they got to be done. They have value, but they don't have that, I guess, heart satisfaction that some people are looking for. People are living in smaller homes. There's the micro-home trend. And again, they're doing home-based or gig stuff. And employers have to figure this out because some of these people are never coming back. $18 an hour didn't bring them back. $18 an hour sounded utopian at one time not doing it i'm already hearing calls for 22 and 30 dollars an hour i I don't think that's going to bring them back either and when you get to that level what can we buy what will things cost so how this plays out is an open question Um, i'm curious to know how you're seeing this how you're experiencing it if you own a business or you're the hiring manager at your company i keep hearing stories and and, i mean every day i can't tell you how many of these i've heard either nobody applies for the job or the people that do are a joke i'm doing these online interviews and i can barely keep a straight face it's unbelievable these are these people aren't 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 for real i can't hire them but i've got to hire somebody like i said a, a friend of mine up north as a small business, very specialized business. And right now he's reduced to only taking the business he can personally handle. Doesn't have anybody working with him or for him. He would love to, but he can't get them. So he has to turn away customers. And he provides a particular service that's very unique. It's a niche. He doesn't really have any competitors. So he can't do it. And it just doesn't get done. 
He's taking on the work. He says, I'm working Sundays. I'm working around the clock. But I see dollars passing me by. They have to. I can't get the people. This is the guys that used to work for him part-time have told him, eh, I think I'd rather just be home. So we're talking about the workforce, the workplace, how it's changed. And um, I want to hear what you're experiencing either as somebody that hires or works. 210-599-5555. You know, a friend of mine was telling me the other day, he's got a uh, son in his, young, in his uh, early 20s, and this guy is not working. He's healthy. He's able to work. He's, quote-unquote, between jobs, but his dad is a little concerned about how long the between is going on. And I said to him, well, what, what does he say? And he says, well, Jack, he, he wants to work from home. But the kind of work he does and has always done, none of the jobs he's had are work-from-home jobs. But he wants to work from home. Now, there's a lot more work-from-home than there ever was before, and there's going to be more of it. But not every job will allow that, right? Not every job is possible to be done from home. I think what's happening is we're in a sorting out period of time where people are trying to figure out if they can get this new kind of gig where either they work from home or the job is fulfilling. And of course, not everybody's going to get it. But suddenly everybody, or almost everybody, thinks, I might be able to get it. So let me get out of this fast food job. Let me get out of this warehouse job and see if I can get that other thing. The trend began before the global lockdown, but I think the global lockdown revealed and accelerated this process. What do you think? I don't think this is just laziness. I'm not discounting laziness and there's laziness and you can say what you want about different generations and groups. But if you stop with that, oh, the kids today just don't want to work. I'm sorry, I think, that, I think that's a lazy thing to say. I think that's like, you don't want to think it through. There's more going on here than that. Because there are people that are not only not working, but they're not ambitious about goods or materials or, or, or stuff. And they're thinking, I, you know, maybe if I don't need a big place or I don't need a new car, I, I don't really need this job. I saw a survey from, um, this is um, Small Business Owners, NFIB, and um, it says that the expectations of small business owners for the future are at a 48-year low. Inflation is the biggest problem. But right behind that, more than half the companies in the survey, and this was a survey of thousands of business owners, the number two problem behind inflation was job openings that could not be filled. More than half of these companies have job openings they cannot fill. So they can't produce or deliver the things they want to do. They can't meet the demand customers are putting on them. That's We talk about the excuse sign economy that we're in, right? You go into a restaurant, you go going to walk into a business, and there's a sign on the door lowering your expectations, telling you 
what will not happen, what not to expect. Prepare yourself for not having this, not getting that. Companies and businesses used to used to boast on their front door. They used to they used to want to promise you the moon as you walked into their business. World's best. Now the sign says, "Sorry, we don't have." And then um, these companies are raising compensation. They're raising wages, and they're doing it while trying to hold down prices, but they obviously they're not going to be able to do that. And then almost half the companies report supply chain disruptions. These numbers are growing, and their optimism is at the lowest point in 48 years. That 48-year mark just represents the length of time they've asked this question. It might be, it might be further back, but they've only been asking the question for 48 years. It's the lowest it's ever been. What about you? What do you see? 210-599-5555. Why won't people work? And is that what's happening with you? Rudy is on KTSA at 210-599-5555. Hello, Rudy. Hey, how's it going there? Good. How are you doing? I'm, uh, well, I'm doing pretty good right now. Uh, I had a small business. Uh, I basically made Bluetooth devices out of ammo cans and stuff like that. And uh, unfortunately, because of COVID and supply chain disruptions, I ended up shutting down. And it did, with this economy, I know there's not a lot of expendable income. And Because I've thought about bringing the business back up, but... You know, it, it, to me, it seems like this market's just not going to bear my business, and there's no way I can get back into it without mm-hmm. having a full-time job on the side. And right. I think that's the case with a whole bunch of other small business owners that I know. Uh, and it's, it's really unfortunate, but, you know, again, I don't think the market's going to bear uh, a, another small business, or, you know, at least definitely not my small business. Right. So you make something that people don't need but might want. Correct. Yeah, what what do you think explains, is. why are businesses that make things we need even struggling? I think a lot of it has to do with regulations. I happen to work in the pharmaceutical business, and uh, we've seen, you know, interesting things happen in, in that business where regulations are pushed higher uh, with certain certain different, you know, outside of COVID-type things. Uh, but when it came to COVID, they relaxed it, uh, you know, for vaccines for COVID things. But when it's not related to COVID, they basically are continuing to, to really uh, drive those businesses in the ground to regulation and make yeah. it really difficult. Yeah, interesting. So it's, it's like they have two different uh, two different types of, of uh, rules. You know, those with, you know, you want to create a vaccine or have something to do with COVID that kind of expands or extends this, this uh situation we're going through then by all means they're, they're willing to uh, look through or pass things but if you're, yep. if you're in a different type of pharmaceutical you know they still have those type of yeah. stringent uh, regulations yeah, that's a great point yeah waivers for some and not for others Rudy thank you I appreciate having, having your call um, I read where the Starbucks on Vance Jackson and 410 has voted to unionize <laughs> sorry I don't mean to laugh, but I got to laugh. I mean, it's not exactly, you know, I'm sorry, but it's, it's, it, this isn't the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. It's Starbucks. So the workers have unionized, organized. It is um, one of the first in the state, 
I think it's the second or third, actually, in the state to do this, but they're starting to do it all around the country. They're unionizing the Starbucks. And um, I read that today. A day or two ago, I read that Starbucks' top guy, I forget his name, had speculated in an interview that they were going to start locking their bathrooms and limiting their seating. Now, at one time, a few years ago, their mantra over there was they wanted to be your third place. In other words, it wasn't just going to be about coffee. They wanted to be your third place, meaning that home was your first place, your job or work was your second place, and this would be your third place where you'd hang out, where you'd meet friends, where you'd, you know, play with your phone, read a book, people watch, what have you, study, whatever it might be. So they went to that model, right? Please, we want you to spend as much time here as possible. We want you to be here whenever you can be. Now they're going to lock the bathrooms. Well, the reason they have to lock the bathrooms, he explained, is because homeless people are, are living in the bathrooms. So their idea of being everybody's third place doesn't work if a home for a homeless person that becomes their first place. And remember the 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 controversy some years ago where a Starbucks asked a, cu- a couple of black men to leave. I think it was a Philadelphia store because they hadn't bought a drink, and their their explanation was, "Well, we're waiting on somebody, and then we're going to buy drinks." And it it became a whole big racial kerfuffle. And the company apologized profusely to them. And I think there was a settlement. It was pretty substantial. They can't figure out what to do. They can't make up their minds. And this is the woke company, Starbucks. Their workers are unionizing. They don't know how to manage their dining rooms. I've also heard this executive say it's possible that in the future, Starbucks will be just a drive-through only business. And yet again, just a few years ago, it was please come in and sit down and take a load off. So we're in a real chaotic, sorting out kind of time. And if companies that big don't know what the hell to do, then I'm sure small companies struggle with it too. 210-599-5555. Zach is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Zach, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How you been? I'm good. How are you? Oh, it's uh, it's plenty hot. So, you know, summer's here at last, you know. Yeah. What do you think is going on with this workplace stuff that we're talking about? Well, my theory is that, you know, a while back when they said we only need essential workers right now, I think that was a big slap in the face of the large portion of the workforce and said, well, why should we go back to work when we don't know if we're going to be, you know, considered essential or not? Right. Right. Yeah, not only to workers, but you told entire companies and industries that they were, uh, quote unquote, non-essential. So. Yeah, it exactly. makes it hard to know whether to invest in it, whether to open it, whether to go work in it. You're right. And I'm lucky enough to, you know, have work where so long as schools and organizations play sports, I've got work. So, I mean, I'm happy I've got that. But for some people, they just don't have a, you know, have that motivation anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, do you know people that could be working but have chosen not to? Oh, yeah. I've got, I know plenty of You know, okay. motivated to work, but all the work that they do have is like, well, this isn't something I can build a career off of. Right. 
anyway, but I mean, my theory be- on it. Yeah, but I mean, before you build a career, you have to. I mean, you have to kind of start somewhere, right? Like you can't. Right. You don't have a career right off the bat. First, you have to have jobs that are just jobs, and it seems like right. that's where be people able to go out there and work. Right, and it seems like that's where people are losing. I don't know, losing interest. Uh, and Maybe. if they don't, if they can somehow figure out a way to not work, then that's what they're doing. Yeah, that's kind of how I see it. It's all, all these entry-level jobs, and they're expecting the moon from it. Right, right. Uh, Zach, I appreciate the call. Thank you. Um, I know one thing that's different now, and, and I don't mean to sound like a dinosaur, but when I was as young as I think Zach probably is, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do this only because there was a stigma to being able-bodied and not working. I mean... You would, I don't care how hard-nosed you were, or I don't care what people think, I'm independent, I'm a, you know, you, you, there was an overwhelming stench around somebody who had the ability, the physical ability to work and, and wasn't working. And you felt it. And if nothing else got you out the door, that did. I mean, it usually wasn't, that wasn't what got you out the door, but if nothing else did, that did. And I don't think that's true anymore. And, and Zach put his finger on it. We told people um, that was no longer true. We actually told them the opposite. It was heroic to not go to work. Last night in a special election for an open house seat, the 34th Congressional District, Republican Myra Flores beat Democrat Dan Sanchez 51 to 43 percent winning the seat outright, but only for the next five months until November when they'll have a new election and they'll actually have new boundaries. And the new district lines are more favorable to the Democrats, and there will be a Democratic congressman running at that time because he's been moved into this district. So she'll, she'll be a Republican incumbent running against a Democratic incumbent most likely in November. It is significant that Republicans flipped this seat, no doubt about it. Um, and it's significant that there hasn't been a Republican elected in I don't know how long, a lifetime in that in that district. I'm 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 not trying to give her you know, not give her, her her full credit. She was a good candidate, she ran a good race, she's an interesting person, she has an interesting life experience. I do think what I take away from this is that it really looks to me like, and it's taken a while, it looks to me like the assumptions Democrats make about black voters and Hispanic voters, and in this case primarily Hispanic voters, those assumptions are not true. What they think you want, what they're sure you want, or the stuff that they are sure you will be good with, you're not. And this means that their whole strategy, great replacement, open borders, pandering, isn't going to work if it turns out that Hispanic voters are more conservative on those issues. Not that they necessarily are conservatives, but just that they're more conservative than the leadership of the Democratic Party right now. I mean, take abortion, take the border, take gas prices, 
take crime. Democrats just assume that the positions they've taken on these things are A-OK with those voters. And I think what we're finding is that's not necessarily true. I would just point out to the Republicans, and if you are a Republican, I'm, I'm talking to you right now, when voters get disenchanted with Democrats, they don't have to vote for you. They can also just not vote. And you, you're, not, you're none the better off if that happens. So I don't think this is uh, a story that's anywhere near being finished. The, there's a, there's an, uh, an erosion or an exodus out of these voting blocks. It's going to be slow, but it, it clearly is happening. I think it is possible that as soon as 2024 or 2028, the Republican presidential candidate, whoever he or she is, may get the majority of the Hispanic vote in this country. I think that is possible. But Republicans are going to have to do this right or people will just stop voting for Democrats. It's not binary. It doesn't have to go to you. Their vote doesn't have to go to you. You know, when they walk away from the Democratic Party, doesn't mean they walk into your arms. Do you, and I'm asking this sincerely, I, I, I probably sound flippant to say this, but do you think Republicans get what's going on? Do you think they, think they understand what is going into this predicted red wave or red tsunami or whatever it is? You think they get it? Do they think they're making this happen? Or do they understand that it's actually the Democrats that are making it happen? The red wave is a Democratic event. It's, it's being driven by the stuff they say, the way they sound, the out of touch, the telling people you're better off than you think you are, this economy is great, you should be happy with Biden. Wealthy, powerful people are looking down at you saying you should appreciate this president. We do. And you're like, what are you, what are you talking about? But they don't, know, they don't know anything about how you and I live. They don't pay the prices we pay. They don't do the things we do. They don't experience this economy in real, you know, boots on the ground, rubber meets the road. about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. Seems to be yelling more. I think that's a good strategy, you know. That's what the American people need. They need a good... We need a good... After the last two years, we need a good yelling, right? (laughs) I'd say Biden is about one day away from threatening to turn this country around if we don't settle down in the back seat. You know what I'm saying? Uh, this half hour, the results on the Stevens Roofing JR poll. A top White House economic advisor said on Bloomberg the other day that most Americans, if they would take a step back, would realize they're better off than they were two years ago. Economically, he meant. Your economics are better than you think they are. Do you agree or disagree? We're going to find out in a few minutes on our JR poll. And you can grab a line. We can talk about that. 210 
I've heard people say this for years, and including, by the way, um, people that are themselves transgender. They've been sounding the alarm that too many young people are flirting with or experimenting with or impulsively choosing um, transition. And that they're concerned at the at the number of young people who believe they are the wrong gender. In other words, believe that the, the body they're living in is not who they are. There's a woman named Lisa Littman who said a lot about this in, in recent years, makes a lot of sense about it. These aren't these aren't uh, haters. They are, in, in, in most cases, they are themselves transgender people. But they're saying this is not right for everyone, and it's certainly not a decision young people should be rushing into. And now there's a long article in the New York Times Magazine about this, acknowledging this. And um, let me read you just, just, just a, a little quote. This is a uh, some sort of document from some group uh, that, that sets standards of care for transgender and transitioning from male to female or female to male. Part of the rise in trans identification among teenagers could be a result of what is called social influence absorbed online or peer-to-peer. Um, It talks about a small group of people who transition, saying that some of them have described how social influence was relevant in their experience of their gender during adolescence. In adolescence, peers and culture often affect how kids see themselves and who they want to be. Their sense of self can consolidate or they can try on a way of being that doesn't prove right in the long term as the brain further develops the capacity for thinking long term. And I remember years ago when my daughter was just entering adolescence, somebody explained to me that the last part of the brain to to develop, we say this jokingly, those of us who are parents of teenagers, but it's actually profoundly interesting to think about. The last part of the brain that develops is the the decision-making part, right? That's why that's why a good kid that never got in trouble before takes the family car and drives 132 miles an hour because an impulse overrides decision-making. And here we have a culture, here we have schools. Remember yesterday the story, I think it was Arizona, where heterosexual high school students were being hectored by a curriculum that said, how do you know you're straight? How can you be straight if you've never tried being gay? Maybe you need a same-sex lover. Maybe this, maybe being straight is a phase you'll grow out of. And here are people in the field of transitioning, as they call it, saying, wow, we're starting to think that maybe a lot of young people aren't ready to make this decision, really 
are making it for the wrong reasons. We don't want them to do anything they can't turn back from later. This isn't like trying on makeup or painting your nails or wearing your hair longer. These are, these are um, pro, you know, really serious um, pharmaceutical and, and surgical alterations. And, you know, you're probably nodding, thinking, well, yeah, this is obvious, of course. If there's social pressure, if there's social media, peer pressure, if the culture's holding it up as heroic and cool, and what have we done? How many young people are in the midst of a transition they really weren't sure of, and that did not come from some inner drive, came from wanting to belong. It's um, it's a good first step that they're acknowledging this. Unfortunately, it's going to come too late for some people. But I, I, I look at this as part of the whole, even the thing we were talking about before, so much of the way you act and the choices you make when you're young, I'm going to say when you're under 25, if you really want to understand what people are doing, a huge, huge part of it is what they think everyone around them is doing or expects from them. That can be a good thing. You know, sometimes that can be a good thing. It can influence you to do good things or make good choices. But it can also have you know, disastrous effects. And that's where adults come in. That's where we have to say, I know you think you want this, or I know you're sure you want to do this, but you, you don't know, you can't know. And instead, the people that should be saying those things are telling them, yes, go do it, go, go ahead. We'll help you, we'll make it the law, we'll put it in school, we'll put it in the curriculum. I mean, that, that is vile. I'm sorry, but it is. I don't, I don't care what your politics are, what advantage you think you're gaining. Telling people we know are not sure that they really are sure is, is I mean, misleading isn't even a strong enough word. It's just evil. So at least they're starting to acknowledge it, the clinicians and the researchers uh, that work in this field, according to the New York Times Magazine. It was unanimous on the JR poll today. All our voting, all our platforms, 100% uh, said no to the White House. No, we're not better off than we were two years ago. So I thought there'd be one or two people, and I was, you know, that would have been fine. But that's okay. Um, tomorrow's Thursday, at, which I know is not a news flash, but just so you know, tomorrow is the next possible day that we could get the Dobbs decision on um, abortion. Or it could be next week, or it could be even early next month. Kathleen Parker had an interesting column about this um, that I read excerpts from at National Review's website. She says, it's an irony that the people who want to protect life must put their own lives at risk. Maybe violence is what we should expect, 
when abortion, one of the most violent acts conceived by humankind, is ground zero. Whatever one's argument for abortion, there's no debating the utterly inhumane violence inflicted upon a gestating human being. She goes on to talk about how the media have mostly ignored the dozens of attacks on churches and crisis pregnancy centers since that leak of a draft opinion came out almost two months ago. And you've heard about it on our show, and you may read about it on certain conservative websites, but it's by and large been ignored. And think about what's being attacked, churches and crisis pregnancy centers. Churches, houses of prayer, worship, places that practice charity, golden rule. Crisis pregnancy centers are not the enemy of abortion or Planned Parenthood. They help pregnant women. They give them counseling. They give them resources. They give them diapers. They give them formula. One of the knocks on those of us who are pro-life is that we don't really care about life. We don't do anything for women and babies once the babies are born. But crisis pregnancy centers give the lie to that. And you would think that a semi-healthy society could condemn attacks on churches, attacks on crisis pregnancy centers, no matter how you feel about Roe v. Wade, no matter how vehemently you want it upheld, no matter how strongly you believe that abortion is a right, it says something that we've lost our ability to even condemn from the White House on down. Violence against these kinds of people. Numerous opportunities to condemn it. And once the Supreme Court decision is announced, and again, that could be as early as tomorrow, it will be too late to cool this down. Any opportunity, any potential for cooling it down, for bringing people to their senses will be gone. Everybody's going to go into their crouch. Everybody's going to go behind their ramparts. Everybody's going to pick up their signs and their sticks, and it all begins. So pray pray about that. If you're a praying person, pray about that. Um, he never worked at a radio station. Not one day of his life did he work on the radio or at a radio station. But a man named Joel Whitburn has died, and Joel Whitburn is part of every music radio station in America. He was a writer, biographer, and he developed a hobby, really, from the time he was a young person and was collecting records like a lot of young people did. He began researching and compiling breakouts and research of the Billboard music charts, the top 40 charts, the R&B charts, the country music charts, the jazz charts. Uh, 
Joel Whitburn wrote over 200 uh, books and articles and um, essays and analyses of the charts. When I was in music radio, we just called it a Whitburn. It was it meant you had one of his books. They were like um, having a dictionary of the hits. So if you wanted to see all the hits from Elton John chronologically with their chart rankings and when they hit the charts and when they hit number one or how high they went, you could see all that. If you wanted to see the top ten songs from the day you graduated from high school, if you wanted to see what the number one song was on the day you were born, if you wanted to know what the number one song was, you know, ten years ago today, you just went to one of Joel's books. So he was in every radio station in America, yet never worked at any radio station. Joel Whitburn was 82 years old when he passed away yesterday. It's kind of an incredible niche that he carved out for himself. And again, it just came from, I, I, from what I know of him, I've never met him, it, it wasn't a strategy, I'm going to build a business out of this. It just came from loving music and loving listening to the radio. Always grateful for people who love listening to the radio. Hope you'll come back again here tomorrow between 4 and 7 or anytime on demand at KTSA.com.